From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox president Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF. Welcome to What'd You Miss This Week. I'm Scarlett Fu. This podcast has the best and most interesting interviews from the Daily Market Closed show that I co-anchor with Joe Weisenthal, Caroline Hyde, and Romaine Bostic on Bloomberg Television, What'd You Miss? Our aim is to take you beyond the headlines and bring you unique perspective on the week's top stories and those you may just have missed. Forget the blue wave, the real winner of this week's midterm elections didn't have an R or D after their name. Tuesday was all about the green wave. Three of the four states where marijuana was on the ballot voted in favor of legislating either medical or recreational cannabis, giving pot stocks an initial electoral boost on Wednesday. Cannabis companies rallied again that day on the news of Attorney General and POP foe Jeff Sessions' ouster. But those cannabis company shares came back down to earth on Thursday, and we spoke with Vivian Azer, senior research analyst at Cowan, about just how significant the news was for the ongoing expansion of the legal marijuana market here in the U.S. Well, certainly the election results yesterday were um, critical and, you know, a continuation of the momentum that we certainly saw in the 2016 elections where eight out of nine ballot initiatives passed. Uh, We continue to see growing support amongst U.S. voters in favor of cannabis, both for medical and adult use purposes. Recent Gallup data shows that 66 percent of Americans are now in favor of legalizing adult use. And we certainly saw that out of Michigan yesterday. Vivian, when we talk about the possibility of federal uh, approval or, or of, of the marijuana recreational or medical in some capacity, uh, why would the removal of Jeff Sessions uh, accelerate that process? Because it seems like the Justice Departments from either administration, Democrat or Republican, have largely been opposed to this. Uh, certainly. Well, Jeff Sessions has been, you know, pretty vocal um, in terms of being anti-cannabis. Um, that really culminated in his um, Department of Justice rescinding the Cole memo at the beginning of 2018, which was meant to give um, some legal protections to operators that are operating legally at the state level. Um, you know, as we've contemplated, you know, a replacement for, for Attorney General Sessions, it really is just hard to imagine anybody that could be worse for the cannabis industry. In your notes previously, you've outlined, as we look towards the midterms, how important certain leaders do make for the passage of pro-pot legislation. In particular, you say Mitch McConnell's a key issue, a key opponent. How much does potentially Nancy Pelosi, who's likely to become the Speaker of the House, mean? What does that mean in terms of legislation? Um, well, we've certainly seen Democrats more broadly um, embrace cannabis um, as an issue. You saw in Illinois, for instance, um, Pritzker just won as governor, and he was running an adult-use cannabis platform. Um, you saw Andrew Gillum, who was defeated in Florida yesterday, also running on the same. So seemingly, uh, Nancy Pelosi, you know, being a California Democrat, that, uh, that would be helpful. 
Vivian, what of the publicly traded companies do you think have the best opportunity in the United States market specifically uh, once it become, once uh, the legal situation becomes more clear? Sure. So I don't cover any of the um, U.S. operators, but of the Canadian licensed producers that I cover, I think um, Canopy Growth uh, would be best positioned. You know, they've obviously gotten a massive cash infusion from Constellation brands of $4 billion as they um, upsize their stake in the company. Um, and that now gives them real insights into the regulatory pathways um, that could create opportunities for them in the U.S. So quite specifically, um, both companies have said um, when the farm bill passes, it has a hemp act in it. Um, that um, they will enter the U.S. hemp drive CBD beverage market, and that with the passage of the States Act, um, you know, which everyone is hopeful will pass in 2019, it's bipartisan uh, legislation that'll decriminalize cannabis. Um, that that would be um, the catalyst for Canopy to enter the U.S. market. How important is national clarity on the issue versus the sort of piecemeal approach we've seen so far of state after state after state setting up their own laws and markets? So right now, um, it is an impediment, and, and that's why canopy growth um, won't enter the U.S. market um, in, the cer- in the current un- uh, regulatory framework. Um, you know, Constellation operates in the U.S. or a U.S.-listed company, um, and they wouldn't want it to do anything that would, um, you know, infringe on um, federal laws. And so um, right now, the current construct makes it very tough for large established um, consumer packaged good companies um, to participate in the U.S. opportunity. Um, but with the passage of the States Act, it would really... Um, put those rules in the hands of the states, um, and it would remove kind of that, that federal risk. We also spoke with Mandy Shu, Chief Equity Derivative Strategist for Credit Suisse. Mandy has noted that equity volatility is unique among asset classes because we're not seeing it necessarily in fixed income, in FX, in credit, or in commodities. We asked her what that tells us about the market. One of the things I've been highlighting is that if you look at the recent rise in the VIX, we're not seeing a corresponding rise in rate vol. We're not seeing it in FX, in credit, in commodities. What that tells me is whatever you say, uh, whatever you pinpoint the recent equity correction on, it's not macro. It's not global growth concerns. You know, it's not U.S. growth concerns, as we just pointed out. You know, payrolls is still great. Uh, unemployment numbers are falling. There's no wage inflation. So to me, what's been driving markets recently is a very equity-specific uh, catalyst, not macro. And that's why you're seeing macro volatility contained at the same time as equity volatility is surging. What's interesting is on a day where we see Apple plummet for a a very stable stock, technology is... What are you seeing in terms of correlations? Because you've been highlighting that tech is really a, a, a key area of concern here. Yeah, so one of the unique things about this uh, recent sell-off is that overall market correlation is actually very muted. So one measure that we look at is just correlation of the top 100 stocks in the S&P. That's around 30 to 40% currently. Mm-hmm. Typically, when you get a down 10% move in the S&P, we're talking about 75 80% correlation. Um, but at the same time, overall market correlation is muted. We're seeing elevated correlation in specific sectors. So tech is one of them. Another area that's been very highly correlated are the crowded hedge fund longs, right? Mm -hmm. So names where everyone is in, they got hammered. And I think the hedge fund community, as you're seeing, equity long short community is really hurting this past month. So what kind of assumptions can you make from that? What does that tell us about how much 
more downside there might be to the equity market overall? Yeah, sure. So my big takeaway uh, from you know, the dislocation between equity and cross-asset vol, between you know, the correlation aspect, is that this is very much an earnings-driven, single-stock-driven, fundamentally-driven correction in the S&P. So people are focused on earnings, not necessarily this quarter's earnings, because I think coming in, everyone understood it was going to be good, right. but in terms of earnings outlook, mm-hmm. right? What's it going to be next year? To quote Caterpillar CEO, is this, are we at peak margins, right? So I think that to me uh, is a big question on everyone's mind. And that's why you're seeing this disproportionate move in equities that you're not seeing in other asset classes. So it doesn't resemble a capitulation either. This has been fairly orderly as well. People are picking their spots. Exactly. That- What's interesting to me is someone who would have thought that if you are going to see fundamental, well, more, more systemic issues, you would look over to Europe at the moment mm-hmm. where you've got Brexit, Italy, many concerns. Volatility has no. been much higher in the US versus yes. Europe. You've got a great chart showing this. Yeah, so that's for sure. It's the spike kind of the litany of like, you know, catalyst near-term concerns for Europe. Uh, the VIX is trading higher than the European wow. counterpart. I think because the US has been the outperformer year to date, mm. you know, US is the growth engine of the world right now. So people are, I think, concerned uh, and therefore, you know, pricing in high risk premium for the U.S. equity markets. Uh, but I say that, I, at the same time, I want to emphasize it's not really fear that's driving. So, it, you know, in, in the options market, one of the measures we look at is skew, so demand for downside protection. What's really notable about this recent correction is as markets have been selling off, investors have been monetizing hedges, uh, positioning for upside. We're not seeing panic. So one of the measures that we look at, the Credit Suisse Fear Barometer Index, that's hitting multi-year lows. I think that tells you people recognize that this is a very stock-specific, stock-driven correction, not macro. So you don't see that panic. You don't see that big bid for downside protection that you typically see. Compare and contrast what we see right now versus what we got in February when there was Volmageddon. Oh, my goodness. Yes, very different. So back then, so the correlation measure I talked about, back then correlations were 80% or higher in the S&P. So every stock was selling off. Every sector was selling off. Mm. Whereas this time, there's much more differentiation. And to me, that's constructive. So when people talk about the concerns that this was catalyzed by the Fed or this was catalyzed by trade, right. you're just the options market isn't buying that. No. I mean, well, the, when they talk about the catalyzed by Fed, I, I do think, you know, the rise in, in, in yields in the beginning of October or September, mm-hmm. that, you know, was a concern for investors. But what's notable is that this time, equity rate correlation has stayed positive this mm-hmm. entire correction. So we're, you know, on days where rates are higher, equities tend to be higher as well, and vice versa, right? It's very different from January, February, when that correlation turned negative. So you had equities down and bonds down, so rates higher, right? So we're not, we're not in that, that dynamic right now. I think we're not in that dy- dynamic is because of lack of inflation. So beginning of the year, everyone was talking about inflation, uh, the Fed getting behind the curve. We're not really hearing that anymore. So I think without inflation, rates can't get out of hand. And if rates can't get out of hand, the equity rate correlation, I expect to remain positive. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. Then we sat down with Seema Hingarani. She's a founder and chair of Girls Who Invest. Only one out of 10 U.S. mutual fund managers are women, and Girls Who Invest is trying to help solve the pipeline problem. We talked about the state of the labor market for women in finance 
and why gender-diverse financial teams get better outcomes. I began by asking her if women get more of a chance to shine in finance when markets are doing well or when they're choppy, and whether there's a link. I don't think there's necessarily a link. Um, I think women should be at the table at all times, honestly. Uh, more gender-diverse teams get better outcomes. There's been plenty of research that we've mm. all read about over the years that has shown that. Um, and I think in, in any situation across the economy, whether it's investing, whether it's in politics, mm. uh, social situations, uh, when you have more diverse perspectives at a table, I think you tend to make better decisions. I agree with that, but I ask because it's been observed that women often get their chance at a top job, at a top CEO job, for instance, when mm. the company's struggling. They don't want to take a chance on a woman when things are going well. Yes, that has been a trend. That is true. Um, But more power to those women, right? Because uh, they'll come in, they'll take a different perspective. Mm -hmm. uh, And hopefully that works out in the end and they get the support internally to do that. Because often, as you know well, it's hard to make change. Uh, It's hard to come up with new ideas. It's hard to innovate. Uh, But I think women tend to shine in those situations. And maybe that's why they get chosen at those times rather than not. In terms of innovating, in terms of making different choices, interestingly, you're helping seed new funds that are looking at alternative investments. In particular, you're backing women or people of ethnic minorities to to take the helm at new types of funds. Where are you seeing the biggest growth there? Where where are people wanting to build? You know, what's interesting uh, is with this new fund that I'm starting up, um, in many ways, I think of it as Girls Who Invest 2.0. Mm-hmm. So with Girls Who Invest, we're focused on the pipeline, mm-hmm. getting more young women into the industry. Is it working? It is, actually. We have some great statistics now. We're in our third year of Girls Who Invest. Uh, we have put through nearly 200 women through our core flagship program, which includes a four-week educational training on Penn's campus and University of Notre Dame campus, basically a mini-MBA. And then for the next six weeks, we've secured for them paid summer internships at some of the best asset management firms in the world. So 100 women went through our program this summer. Those 100 internships represented 66 unique firms across the world. We are literally changing the way, which is so exciting, the way the industry thinks about recruiting talent. One initiative you have is to help uh, women alternative investment managers seed their own funds, start their own funds. And I'm curious about the linkage to politics and fundraising in general, because with midterm elections coming up and a record number of women running for office, what's troubling is how a lot of the women are trailing men in fundraising. Women are raising less money than men, even when they're in more competitive races and the men are long shot candidates. Is this an obstacle for women in asset management as well, this need to ask for money all the time from people? Well, I think, um, I mean, that's one of the reasons why I started this fund is because it's true that raising capital is just really hard for anybody, but it's especially hard for women to raise capital. There's unfortunately, you know, a certain bias that's still out there. And I think that's something we just have to overcome. And so I felt like, well, let's try to put more women in business. I'll go out and try to raise that capital from really great institutional investors, put them in business, help them in those early years as they get up and running and prove to the world that you know, women can make money, manage money really successfully, and grow sustainable, consistently run businesses. Is that bias changing? I'm sorry? Is that bias changing? Are you starting to see people who you never thought before looking to the women that you're managing to put through the courses that you run and actually starting to hire them and wanting to get more of them? Yes, absolutely. And I think that's what's so encouraging for me. I've been very encouraged by our, our industry. Just with Girls Who Invest alone, we are actually changing the way these firms think about recruiting talent. 
I mean, for the first time, uh, we have a very significant, successful hedge fund manager who has never considered hiring a student out of college, right out of college, for their investment team, and they are going after and hiring one of our Girls Who Invest scholars for a full-time position for next year after she graduates. So it's incredibly encouraging, and I think the same is about to happen on the side of women starting their own funds. I think when they start to believe and they see that you know they can raise capital as well, or maybe even better than some of the men out there, they know they're good investors. They have great track records. They have great pedigrees, and now it's just about putting them in business. Very cool question. What's the number one tip, then, to raising capital as a woman? Hmm. <laughs> so it's, uh, it's sticking to um, what you do well, your strategy, explaining that well, articulating that well. Um, they clearly know their positions in the portfolio extremely well. But it's, I think a lot of it's having the confidence to sit across the table from an asset owner and say, this is what I do, I do it really well, and I want to build a great business. And so I'd love to have you as a partner. Then we dove into the ETF wars. GTS agreeing to buy two key businesses from Cantor Fitzgerald. So we caught up with the founder and CEO of GTS, Ari Rubenstein, and the legendary industry figure, Reggie Brown, who's the global co-head of ETFs at Cantor. We began by asking about the partnership and asked how long this deal had been in the works and who approached who first. Well, today's a great, great day for investors. They're about to get a huge upgrade whenever they access the capital markets and trade and and invest. Uh, GTS has announced that we're acquiring uh, both the ETF market-making business and client service business and the wholesale market-making business of Cantor Fitzgerald. And and with that, um, it allows GTS to help fulfill our mission, which is to use technology to bring innovation and and, um, a new level of client service uh, to the markets. And, and what that'll do is help investors save money whenever they trade or invest, and it'll help increase investor confidence. So we're really happy about that. You didn't answer the question, though, of who approached you first. You know, um, you know G- GTS is down at the New York Stock Exchange. We're, we're the, the largest market maker. So for us, we brought our technology for the public companies we serve and their employees, and it's worked out really well. And we've been looking for ways that we can broaden uh, that offering and mm-hmm. reach investors of all kinds, whether they're large or small institutional investors or retail investors. And it's hard to not be aware of Reggie and his <laughs> unbelievable team that has really been pioneers in the industry. And um, we've had a relationship with them, and, and we're thrilled that we were able to put this together. Well, Reggie, how do you plan to leverage the technology that's on hand at GTS? And, and what kind of benefits will it result in in the near term and in the longer term? Well, I see this as building upon our long legacy of uh, serving clients and helping solve problems. And now we're going to deploy technology solutions to further engage clients to meet their needs. What does that mean? Faster turnaround time? uh, Cheaper? I mean, it's just uh, some innovation in the marketplace, a little more competition. Um, What does innovation mean? Well, look, uh, look at ETFs. You know, you look at overall... 8% 8% of U.S. households have, have use of an ETF. There's a lot of growth still in the portfolios. ETF industry is still young in comparative terms. I think there's a lot of opportunity to develop new solutions, take our business acumen, help clients, and succeed in areas that um, are yet to be addressed. What does this mean for you in terms of competition, Ari? How specifically does it allow you to better compete against names like Virtu and Citadel? Well, you know, it's one thing to remember is that Clients came to us and wanted this. We were responding to a client need, 
clients. How long have they been talking to you about this? Um, you know, for a decent period of time, they've been talking to Reggie and, and, and his team for a long time. We responded to a client demand. They wanted a new level of competition. They wanted a mm -hmm. new level of innovation. And we're thrilled to deliver, and, and we're happy to bring Reggie and his team over and, and start solving some problems, mm -hmm. um, lowering costs for investors, and, and increasing investor confidence. You just mentioned there, Reggie, about yeah, areas yet to be addressed. That's correct. Where else is going to be addressed there? Where do you see low-hanging fruit right now? Well, look, in fixed income, mm -hmm. uh, there is a lot of innovation, particularly that market structure is yet to involve. And you see what uh, ETS have done, brought equity rules inside of fixed income and brought price transparency and tighter spreads. I think there's a lot of value there, particularly. And there, there's pockets outside the United States that have been slow to adopt ETFs. Mm. And I think if you look at the regulatory framework around the globe, there's only five market centers that have adopted rules for ETFs. You know, there's a whole lot of more growth to be had, a whole lot of more opportunity to deliver our values into the marketplace. And you know, look, I'm an ETF evangelist, right? I believe that the entire mutual fund industry will adopt the ETF format at some particular time because of competition, prices are coming down, and it's very difficult to compete from an active standpoint. So you need to have an uh, ETF model to deliver an active manager's IP deliver in the marketplace, and that's just natural growth. Makes sense that Reggie would say this, Ari, but I wonder from where you sit, what are the biggest challenges to the continued adoption and trading of ETFs? What could be an obstacle there? Um, well, I, I think a lot of it is about communication. Mm -hmm. A lot of it is about um, how they work and uh, proliferation of why they're such a valuable investment tool. And Reggie's done such a great job. So we look forward to continuing that. But what's great about ETFs is that when you merge them with great technology in market making and pricing, like what GTS has, um, the advantages of ETS are amplified because they become even more of an efficient vehicle. And that's part of the magic that Reggie and I are going to do. That does it for this episode of What You Missed This Week. If you like this, please make sure to subscribe and rate us at Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. And be sure to tune in to our Market Close show every weekday from 3.30 to 5 p.m. on Bloomberg Television and from 4 to 5 p.m. streaming on Twitter. Thanks for listening and have a great weekend. What could you do if your data was working for you and not against you? With Bloomberg delivering enterprise data directly to your systems, you get easy access to the details you want, optimized for higher level analysis, and financial data experts committed to helping you maximize your every move. Our data is made for more, so you can show the world what you're made of. Visit Bloomberg.com enterprise data to learn more.